I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He is one of those, a rare example of what men should be. And he also set the bar really high. You know, for, for, for husbands like myself, he was really aspirational. I want to be a husband like Marty. I want to be a partner like Marty. I want to be a father like Marty. Hello and welcome to another Curzon Film Podcast. This week, our guest Army hammers down the gavel of celebration for On the Basis of Sex. And a week before the Oscars, we look at foreign language favourite Capernaum. I'm Jake Cunningham and joining me to discuss these movies that both caught the courtroom, we have the right honourable judgments of Kelly Powell. Hello. And Ella Kemp. Hi. And the jury's still out on Sam Howlett. <laughs> Hello. We're going to get started, I think, this week with Capernaum. It is Nadine Labaki's powerfully realistic story of neglected children. It was one of the breakout titles from the Quazette. And in it, we meet Zane as he sets about suing his parents for bringing him into this very world. We then flashback discovering the experiences that have brought him to these extreme measures. He is forced to flee his negligent parents. He cares for a refugee child whilst brushing with crime. It's a story of tenderness in the most painful circumstances. And we had an interview with Nadine Labaki telling us all about the film. And that is on the Curzon blog. Head to curzonblog.com to check that one out. But Ella, you were there in Cannes nine, ten months ago now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this film and how those reactions were when you first heard about it? Yep, so Capernaum was one of the last films in competition to play at the festival. By this point, everyone had seen a lot of the big or like better-known titles with more established auteurs, I'd say. Um, so people didn't really know what to expect with this. And I remember sitting there and just thinking, this film is huge. Yeah, um, I remember when they were talking about, um, you know, what films are going to be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that was talking about is whether Capernaum could get into that or not. And someone mentioned that because in the last days running up to the um, announcement of the release, you know, the, ca- the studio campaigns really push screenings and everything. And someone was worried that this film sounds so bleak people wouldn't go to the screenings and it wouldn't get nominated and it does sound very bleak and I haven't seen it but is it that bleak and if it is that bleak why should we still go and see it it is it's quite bleak but it's not dry it's so emotional and overwhelming that I think it really grabs you even if the subject matter isn't uh, quite so joyful really yeah um and something that is going to really draw you into that is the uh, main character zane um and his performance zane, zane al-rafia's performance um he holds this together it's two hours and it's all on his back really and he goes through quite an extraordinary journey that is based um in real life as well and at some point in that he has, he has to he's i think he's 12 in this um and he has to care for a baby who can't be older than what two mm. I, like 
and even the baby's performance is amazing. Outstanding. Like, not, not like, oh, he's cute. Like It's a performance. Well, it's apparently... Wild. It's wild. Well, when um, Nadina Baki had been introducing these screenings or these preview screenings, she, before the film started, before anyone had seen it, she would say, oh, you know, everyone's amazing in this. And if I could give the baby an award, I would. And then I've heard that people were very sceptical when she said that, thinking, oh, yeah, you're just saying that because you directed it. But by the end of it, everyone, and it was the same back in Cannes, everyone was thinking, who is this baby? And how can we celebrate this baby? (laughs) Who's this agent? (laughs) So it's it's so obviously uh, he's the central uh, uh, actor in it and it follows his story. Um, I also haven't seen it, so I just wanted to know. It's uh, firstly, I think it's an interesting take on a film from the region, um, and w- w- what kind of style is it in? Is it like n- almost like Italian neorealistic yeah, well, kind of style, or like how well, is it? When you're mentioning about oh, this is the bleak foreign language stuff that it's a struggle to watch. You people kind of get that impression of kind of maudlin, slow, misanthropic, um, wallowing around. And I think the reason that people will get out of their seats for this or get to the cinema for it is the energy. It's in this verite style that's constantly moving. Um, in a weird way, I'm going to compare something to compare this film to Lady Bird in that none of the scenes are long. Mm. It doesn't drag its feet at all. It's got this constant momentum. And I think that's down to the energy of where it's being shot in amongst these small streets where you've got uh, mopeds and people charging and school buses with bags tied to the outside. You can't escape it. And I think it's bringing that personality of the city into the editing style. And in that way, you will just be propelled along and you don't feel like you're watching a long film or anything like that because of how much it moves you uh, in in more ways than one. It's interesting um, in the way that it feels so vibrant and that energy, both in the performance and the setting. As um, Nadine said in in the interview, everything is real and authentic. So they didn't stop anything in the city to shoot. They didn't fabricate the busyness of the city. They were the ones trying to fit in and be inv- invisible um, around everything that was happening. And also Zayn isn't an actor and neither is the baby Jonas either. So yeah, it's got that... It, that really raw sense and quite immersive feel because nothing is fake. And I really love what she said, saying, because these facts are happening in the city, who am I to try and imagine them? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because there, there's some imagery there that I felt had to be constructed, um, in particular that of superhero imagery. There's a, there's a guy in the film who's one of the few nice people, nice older men in the film, and... Uh, he hangs around a theme park wearing a Spider-Man costume. and later It looks in... like a Spider-Man costume, but then he's <laughs> yeah. called out and it's a cockroach man. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Make of so, that what you will. Um, and later in the film, we see from a, from a low angle that Zane is wearing uh, Captain America themed tracksuit bottoms as well. Um, and like this is a neat way of showing who, who we can actually track as heroes in this story, or at least good people. Um, but it was a nice comment for those people that are going to the cinema to watch this, uh, to look at the disconnect between the stuff that they are predominantly watching and then the stories that are out there to be told as well. Along with the pace of the film, uh, something that I admire about it is not a lack of emotion, but a lack of, I think it's not crying or screaming, that it's that's not there in the background at all times. It's not trying to manipulate you by hearing these extreme feelings. Uh, it's asking you to first try and empathise with the situation and empathise with the strength of the character that you see in Zane and you see in his face that uh, he's 
almost on the brink of breaking at points, but you never really see it. And then when there are certain moments when it might be from a baby or another character where someone does cry for a moment, it's ear splitting. Mm. Yeah, and it's I think Nadine Mbaki creates this sustained sense of just pain at all times, which means that then when it does break, it's so much more effective, as you say. And there's a lot of music in this film as well, um, which was composed by her husband, who also produces the film as well. So it's interesting how it creates that really um, effective and immersive mood piece. And it's one of two films uh, that are very much focused around a courtroom that we are looking at this week. And I mean, it's a bit, I don't know, like BBC Silent Witness to do a courtroom and then we'll flash back and tell you now how did we get here um so how do you feel about that as a framing device courtroom framing device yeah um it seems a bit unnecessary yeah and i think because like yeah framing devices in general often are a bit hokey i remember in um baz lerman's great gatsby they had this framing device that nick that nick's in a in rehab or something is that I can't remember Ella's laugh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I just remember you think like, why would you give the greatest novel of all time a framing device? Yeah. And it seems here again that you should. Truly, really, let... he was the greatest guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what I mean, it seems like you should let the 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 story speak for itself. You don't need to have context for everything that's going on. You can just have the story happen. It doesn't need to be yeah. retold. I I'm inclined to agree. That was maybe where I took some issue with the film in that. Um, I think a courtroom device like that can work. It's just how it's cut together in this case, uh, in particular with the script, mm. in the way that someone will set something up as if it's and come back from after the break to hear more yeah. from Capernaum. Does it start? Does he say like, "How did we end up here?" Yeah, it's stuff well, like I'll that. Tell you. Um, um, and then you allowed this to happen. I would Cut agree. To this. Yeah. <laughs> However, I do think that for an audience who is put off by the very bleak premise of this film, um, in the trailer and everything, I don't, I, I don't remember in the trailer if there is a courtroom framing device. But um, from all the synopses and everything, it seems to focus a lot more on the middle bit when Zane is with baby Jonas and everything. So I found when watching it for the first time, when there was that courtroom device. It is quite strong and I can see how it could put people off, but I think it successfully creates this kind of intrigue. And when Zane says why he's there, I just think, oh my God, who is this kid? And I, please tell me what he's done, even if it was maybe a tad manipulative. Yeah, and something like this is all about accessibility. You're trying Absolutely. to champion a story that's not going to be heard by a lot of people. And that's always been what something like genre and structure can do for people. Uh, and it makes it easier to consume these kind of stories and from that lens i think it's it's we can be more forgiving towards right. it a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, all right. 
time to move from the stand to the bench for our next film. Uh, but I'm assuming this is a film about high street shops that buy and sell pre-owned physical media. Ella, tell us about On the Basis of Sex. Um, absolutely. So this film, in fact, is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is justly considered a feminist icon and a legal trailblazer. Before she became a, f- a key figure of the US Supreme Court, her legal career set fundamental precedents. In this biopic, directed by Mimi Leader, we see Ginsburg, played by Felicity Jones, and she teams up with her husband Marty, played by Army Hammer, to address a case that has wide-ranging implications for sexual discrimination. Marty? Section 214 of the tax code assumes a caregiver has to be a woman. This is sex-based discrimination against a man. Poor guy. If a federal court ruled that this law is unconstitutional, then it could become the precedent others refer to and build on. Men and women both, it it could topple the whole damn system of discrimination. Uh, Now, the editor of the Curzon blog, Ryan Hewitt, he was lucky enough to talk to Army Hammer, who plays Martin D. Ginsburg, uh, that is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, about his role and what he hopes his projects will do for the perspectives of his audiences as well. Hello, Army Hammer. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Curzon Film Podcast. Um, we're here to talk about your new film, On the Basis of Sex, a biopic about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, hers is, I mean, she's an American hero, a legitimate American hero, but her name in the UK is perhaps a little less well known. How would you describe Ruth to someone who didn't know who she was yet? It's, a, it's an excellent question because you're right. She is, she is very much an integral part of sort of American history. She was directly responsible for shaping the landscape of the country that we live in today. But she also is a sort of internationally notable figure because she picked up the mantle of gender equality and women's rights when it wasn't really the done thing to do so. Um, at the time, she, I mean, she, she's obviously a United States Supreme Court justice now, as well as being a sort of pop culture icon. But... Uh, but, you know, I mean, at the time that she started practicing law, women weren't allowed to own credit cards. They weren't allowed to rent a car without their husband standing next to them going, no, no, it's okay. I promise this little lady can drive, funny as it may seem. Um, and now the sort of landscape that we live in where, I mean, obviously there is still not complete gender parity, but we've made massive strides from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. A lot of it has a direct result as the as to the work that she's put into it. And in the film, you play her husband, Martin, who for the late 60s, early 70s, seems like a fairly progressively minded guy, he does his own dry cleaning, cooks in the kitchen. Uh, how did you kind of create that character? Did you work with Ruth? Did you in, in, research him? Uh, it's it's funny, you're right. Uh, for the 50s, 60s, and 70s, really when this film takes place, he is a very progressive character. I mean, they lead a very sort of progressive relationship. That being said, he also would be a progressive character by today's standards. This is a man who was willing and able, and happily so, to do anything it would take to support his wife. Uh, 
He knew that what she was doing was important. He knew that she could change the world and he knew that she needed to change the world. So anything he could do to be a sort of support system or a buttress to her, he would do. If that meant cooking and cleaning and, and getting the kids ready for school, doing all that stuff in the morning, then he was going to do it because he so believed in the mission of his wife. Uh, I think that that is a tragically underrepresented character in film these days of a genuine supporting husband. You, you, don't, you don't see a lot of that. So when this came along my way, I thought, wow, this is a really unique character. And I also thought, there's no way this guy was this good. Like, this has to be one of those Hollywood machinations of like, this is how good men can be. Uh, so I did some digging and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And I was like, okay, let's be honest. Is this guy a serial killer? Like, where are the bodies buried? What's going on here with this guy? And I dug and I dug and I dug and I spoke to people who knew him. I spoke to former students. I talked to everybody and I said, okay, look, let's be honest. This guy seems too good to be true. This isn't right, right? Like he wasn't this great, right? And everybody ubiquitously said the same thing. No, you're right. This, this isn't correct. He was better than that. And it just was this thing of like, this is, he is a unicorn. You know, I mean, he is one of those a rare example of what men should be and he also set the bar really high you know for 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 husbands like myself he was really aspirational i want to be a husband like marty i want to be a partner like marty i want to be a father like marty so to get to bring someone like that to life uh, seemed like a really good opportunity he he was a tremendous character uh, on the basis of sex and ruth's career more broadly it's kind of about writing um social and moral wrongs through in her case legal reform. And this is something that feels quite timely, particularly for redressing balance of gender inequality, um, particularly with Hollywood. And I wonder if the events of the last 18 months with Time's Up and Me Too, if you felt an impact perhaps in the kind of films that come along and that are being made and the kind of people who are making them? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, the, the, that the whole Harvey Weinstein scandal broke when we were in the middle of shooting this movie. And the, you know, and the subsequent Me Too movement and Time's Up movement happened while we were on set making this movie. And, and what it did is it sort of, it galvanized us. We thought we were making a movie that, that needed to be told that, that, uh, about a woman who deserved to have recognition for her contributions in, in the battle for gender equality. But then as soon as all that happened, we thought, oh my God, this is so much more prescient than, than, than we'd ever anticipated. Um, and it, 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 it's kind of fortuitous in a way because, I mean, this, it, it takes a long time for movies to be made. This movie was in development for seven years before we started shooting it. So you never know what the political or cultural climate is going to be seven years from now. Um, but the fact that all of this sort of happened and broke while we were doing this just kind of bolstered all of our belief that, that we were here doing the right thing. Um, and now, you know, now that now that all these things are going on and now that there's so much more attention being paid to it, um, hopefully, you know, as as Kurt Vonnegut said, uh, you know, entertainment is sort of like the canary in the coal mine. Uh, whatever happens to that canary, which is entertainment, will then happen to everybody else, you know, in terms of, I mean, obviously the canary in the coal mine would asphyxiate, but... but um, this is happening now in, in Hollywood. We have this Me Too. We have Time's Up. We have all of that. And hopefully that will sort of permeate all of the other industries and, and everything else. And we will just continue this quest that, that 
you know, while Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't the first, she was obviously one of the iconic trailblazers of this movement. Hopefully we now, as the next generation, can continue it. And uh, working, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think working with Mimi, this is the first time you've worked with a female filmmaker, female director, and you recently committed to the 4% challenge, is that right? And could you, for those who don't know, could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so um, I've been making movies for oof, 12, 14 years, something like that, and and Mimi Leader, who, who directed On the Basis of Sex, is the first female director that I've ever worked for, uh, which is really shocking and embarrassing and, and you know, and, and all of the other adjectives uh, because, well, for, for, for a lot of reasons, there, there are more women than men on earth, you know, statistically speaking, and also there are more women who graduate from film school than men. So, yeah, I, I learned that over the course of doing promotions for this film. Yeah, so, so... So where are the female directors? Are they not getting a chance? Like, what, what's what's going on? Um, and I know I know Tessa Thompson, who who's been really vocal about this whole thing. We made a movie called Sorry to Bother You together, and uh, and she has this thing where she you know she's like, let's commit to working with female directors, and you know I mean it it seems like a no brainer. And you mentioned um, Sorry to Bother You, obviously on the basis of sex. In the last three years, you also worked on The Birth of a Nation and Call Me By Your Name. And I don't want to put these films all into a pigeonhole together, but they're films that are showing underrepresented ideas, groups, lifestyles. Is this something that you consciously seek out? Um, no, it's it's definitely something that's sought out. Uh, I, I'm, I'm like a child in the sense that I think film is magical. Uh, it's, 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 it's transportive. It's, 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 it's just this, you sit in a theater, you sit in a room and you watch a film and while film is, is an art form, um, much like, you know, painting on a canvas or, or clay on a potter's wheel, whatever, like it, it is a, it is a, it's a it's a kind of art that is incredibly easy to digest. You can watch it and you can experience something, um, and you and if you have something to say, then people can can hear you. Uh, so, if we're going to work in the arts, then we might as well make something that that has something to say. Um, you know, I mean, Birth of a Nation, uh, Sorry to Bother You, Call Me By Your Name, the, uh, On the Basis of Sex, all of these films are something that, that have something to say, something that I, I think is, is something beautiful to say. Um, and if I get to be a part of something that I feel like contributes in some way, then not only do I get to do what I love, but I get to do what I love and feel like I've done it for a purpose. Uh, and that, that to me is, is the best part about the job. Ami Hammer, thank you very much. So let's pretend everyone here hasn't seen the documentary RBG as well. Um, I actually haven't, but I will be checking it out, I'm sure. Um, who can tell us a little bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and why we should be telling this story right now? Well, she's a Supreme Court justice um, and she's been there since the late 90s, I think. Um, and I think she's such an important figure because, well, at a time like, as Ella said, at a time like this where, you know, right-wing politics are, are seeming, <laughs> seem to threaten women's rights in general, um, it's amazing to see how this woman, 
you know, uh, who, having studied law at a time that she did uh, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, came to adulthood at the time she did in the sort of late 50s, early 60s, um, you know, how her passion and desire for justice um, for, you know, for everyone and, you know, under the Constitution in the States, um, fought for for women's rights and not only women's rights i think just the rights of every human being but i think her her the her um focus was uh, to get the laws under the constitution that uh were unconstitutional uh thrown out on the basis of sex so any law uh, that discriminated on the basis of sex she wanted to eradicate and i think she's uh, sort of done a really good job she's also <laughs> well done uh, yeah <laughs> she's also in america especially like a superstar yeah she's yeah a, well, she's, she's such she's a like one of those, massive icon mm. she's one of those weird things and like i'm sure you'll have it as well where like you know of a cultural figure or an icon mm. or pop culture from something like the simpsons whereas like you know yeah. the name or the idea of that person sure. before you mm. know more about mm. them and mm. so i had this idea in my head about she's in futurama as well yeah. she's uh, she's one of the heads in the jars yeah in futurama yeah um and i think a this... true icon <laughs> yeah that's how you know you've yeah, yeah. yeah you're a futurama head in a jar yeah uh and this is one of a, a series of recent stories that we've had of uh, women's achievements that are not widely known or celebrated. Um, so we've had stuff, well, even last week, a private war earlier in the year, Colette, we've already spoken about Can You Ever Forgive Me, The Wife. These are all stories that are championing, fictional or not, uh, stories of women that deserve to be uh, more widely known. And one of those women who should be more widely known is Mimi Leader, who I love. Sam, can you tell us a lot, a lot more about Mimi Leader? I can, Jack, I can. So Mimi Leader was the first female graduate of the uh, American Film Institute. And uh, she was then noticed early in her career by uh, one Steven Spielberg. Um, and she directed a lot of the early episodes of ER. And when he formed DreamWorks, his um, studio, he hired her to make a film called The Peacemaker with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. And then she went on to make Deep Impact, which rules, uh, which rules. <laughs> and um, for, a, you know, even in like the mid 90s for a, a female director to direct a massive budget action blockbuster is a was a really, really big deal. Yeah, it was like unless you were Catherine Bigelow. Exactly. This was a complete anomaly. I know. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that film, I think, is often considered, oh, it's, it's that versus Armageddon and Armageddon was the much bigger hit and is perhaps more spoken about in the culture but deep impact is a vastly better film i think mm -hmm. um but after that she made a film called pay it forward starring Haley joel osmond and kevin spacey and helen hunt not holly hunter helen hunt um and that film was unfortunately it was a critical and commercial failure and she was put in what's sort of known as movie jail where a director makes a bad film and then can't get work for a while and has to kind of work their way back up the ladder but as a woman, it's even harder to break out of movie jail. And she's been very vocal. And she this is her first film since Pay It Forward. Her first oh, feature film. She did film. one weird film called with Antonio Banderas that oh, went really? direct to DVD in like well, 2009. Exactly. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. But she's been very vocal about the fact that it's hard for a man to break out of movie jail, but almost impossible for a woman to break out of movie jail and to like have to work her way back up. And so she's she's been doing a lot of TV in the past few years and a lot of us in the room are big fans of The Leftovers. Yeah. And she not only directed a lot of those episodes, she became the co-showrunner 
So she has a major influence on The Leftovers, which is one of the best TV shows of the past decade. And, you know, this film, obviously, gender inequality is never not going to be a relevant subject. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is never not going to be a boring or irrelevant subject matter. But I think with the context of Mimi Leader, who she is, what her career has been, you know, this is a film about a, a woman in a industry that didn't have a lot of women and they had to really, Ruth Bader Ginsburg really has to prove herself that she's worthy, that she should be amongst these men. And I think Mimi Leader has had a similar kind of struggle throughout her career that she's been like, I can do this as much as you guys, if not better in some cases. So it's a really nice mirroring. Okay, and how are we seeing that direction develop? Like, how do we see something that she's so clearly she she got bigger and bigger and her importance in the leftovers? Perhaps how is her direction and uh, inspiration transformed from a show like that into something like On the Basis of Sex? So I think something that I loved about the leftovers is there's so many huge ideas about existence and you know how painful it is, but vital it is, and all of those kind of things and. Honestly, I can't sing the praises of that highly enough. And so I was very excited to watch this film with, um, you know, Mimi Leader at the head of it. And I think you get some of those loosely similar kind of ways of working with things in that the politics of this film are so clear and so pointed in the sense that, you know, it'll start with there'll be shots of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's high-heeled shoes among a sea of men's shoes. And there's just a lot of images like that that come back again like there'll be a Felicity Jones in a sea of men who I do think this is because of the way it's shot but they look like Oompa Loompas and (laughs) you know there's just a lot of things that um, it's not necessarily as subtle and discreet but then you know for a story like Ruth Bader Ginsburg's where she was such an such an anomaly but such an exciting anomaly why why do you need it to be subtle but that's the thing as well it's like oh it's unsubtle to us now because it's a given Almost, but it actually wasn't a given. That was right. the, that was the truth. You know, she was one of six or nine women in the class at that time at Harvard. She actually, Mimi Leader spoke about the opening because that's the opening scene, right? She's walking in a sea of men who look all the same, and uh, sort of that Mad Men esque sort of idea of men going to work in the sixties. And she's this, you know, a, a beam of light, <laughs> you know, beautiful woman walking through uh, all these men. And she said that that was a very big important opening for her you know that 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 was that was the key you know that it might seem gimmicky but it was the truth yeah and in the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg shows that beam of light I think it comes through in Felicity Jones performance who she leads as this hero that I think she has in a lot of her other films as well like even something like The Theory of Everything or Rogue One when she is the woman attached to these men whether she loves them or has to fight against them and she just plows through and you know she's got that determination that really kind of characterizes her work which isn't it's never too showy or too kind of eccentric or anything but she's just a really solid presence and it's interesting when you watch RBG the documentary then when you see how Ruth Bader Ginsburg really was and is like that in real life she's not over the top she she just does her job Mm. and you know everyone says how quiet she is and yet she has become this pop culture icon through it. This was sorry this was originally going to be Natalie Portman Mm. as Ruth Bader Ginsburg what do you think about that casting versus Felicity Jones's casting because they're quite different performers. Yeah. I think yeah. I can I don't know 
it feels like Natalie Portman's a lot of a bigger performer. Yeah. And she's like, you know, when it, I think of the past few roles she's done, like Vox Lux we'll be talking about in a few weeks, but she's huge in that film. Yeah. And even then in Black Swan and all Jackie. these things. She, and Jackie, yeah, she really goes for all these performances. So we, we've mentioned Felicity Jones's performance and, of course, her relationship with Army Hammer we delved into in the interview there. Um, but I think an important character uh, to delve into and really a relationship that's central to the film is that with her with Jane, her daughter. Yeah, yeah. So that that was... Uh, I thought that that was a very interesting addition to the film. Um, you know, uh, it was, I think, a very important part of it for both Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and, the real Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and uh, Mimi Lida to, to put into the film because I think that it sort of... The relationship between Jane and Ruth, um, firstly, not only gives us insight into who she was not only as you know the supreme court justice but Ru ruth bader ginsburg the woman and the mother and um, because that was also an important role that she played in her life or she still is playing um but also for the for the case that the the, the movie you know is sort of um sort of follows um she's jane is used as a figure for change and i thought i think that they you know we saw that in real life as the, the the next generation of women. This is like why it's important because the culture is changing and the law should change with it. All right. Uh, it is that time of year when we're seeing a lot of biopics out mm. there. Um, Sam, can you tell us maybe a bit about structurally how this one approaches it? Because that, that seems to be the, the thing that people are flexing their muscles on now. How, how can we retell this story? Yeah. Or how can we tell these stories in different ways? So I always think that in something, when I'm trying to think about how to do a really good biopic... There's like there was a three-year period, so it's 2012, 2013, and 2014. 2012, you had Lincoln. 2013, you had um, the Long Walk to Freedom, where Idris Elba plays Nelson Mandela, and then you have Selma in 2014. And I personally think that the ones of those three that we're still talking about and are still considered one of the you know, the great works of the past decade are Lincoln and Selma. It's because those films just take like about maximum a week in their subjects lives whereas long to freedom is a sprawling decade spanning look at one nelson mandela's life and i think that more often than not on film it works better to be as narrow as you can and think right this is the most important period of this person's life or this is a significant part of this person's life let's just make this the best it can be rather than have it just be one scene and this um does something very similar where rather than showing how she you know start with her at harvard and finish with her going to the Supreme Court, it kind of does that, but it doesn't really. You know, rather than tracking those 50 years, it just narrows it down to a couple of years. And I think that works so well, just to see this one, her, her, perhaps her most important case. This is kind of her Batman Begins, you know, this is the case that made her. <laughs> yeah, okay. And by the end, she's fully formed. She's RBG. By the end, she doesn't start as RBG. You have to do that that journey with her. Okay. Um, so if you want some supplementary reading for Beta Begins, yeah. uh, you can do that by watching uh, <laughs> uh, RBG on Curzon Home really Cinema. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got yeah. one. Beta um, Begins book. That's good. This side of the studio. <laughs> this side. Um, yeah, well, again, so because the film doesn't get into the detail of how she became, um, you know, a member of the Supreme Court, that's what the documentary is for. The documentary is, uh, is a better form of telling these massive stories with all these details, whereas narrative feature films are better at just showing you who the people were, you know, just, you know, focusing down like on a microscope level of 
what how they were at this point in their life and how that shaped who we think of them today. And I think also in the, I mean, we haven't mentioned Army Hammer. <laughs> I mean, everyone always talks about him anyway. He doesn't need more people talking about we him. We just talked no, to no. him. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah that's enough. Him. He's had enough. But I think what comes through in both the the, the fiction film and the and the documentary is actually just how much they loved each other mm. and how much they supported each other, um, and just what a wonderful, beautiful couple they were. You know, not only for their careers but also for their lives, and it's touching. Yeah, and if you do want to find out more about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg of her life outside of what happens in this film, uh, the documentary that we've spoken about a couple of times now, RBG, is still on Cousin Home Cinema. So you can do a nice double bill. Brilliant. Uh, it's not the only thing on there as well. We've got the uh, new film from the director of Blue is the Warmest Colour. That's Mech Tube, My yep. Love. And something I'm very excited about seeing has just dropped on there is Snowpiercer. I'm so excited about Snowpiercer because this was never released in UK cinemas due to a... Weinstein related creative difference issue with the director um, Bong Joon Ho, mm. uh, who went on to direct Okja, which I love. Um, so it's a very, I think only a, a select few people have actually seen Snowpiercer. Have you not seen it? Yeah, I have. Okay, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So oh, don't you worry, Kelly. Okay. I've seen Snowpiercer. Chris Evans as well, just saying. Chris Evans, Ed <laughs> Harris, Tilda Swinton playing. John, John Hurt. John Hurt, oh, Jamie yeah. Bell. Yeah. Tilda, yeah, Tilda, Tilda Swinton's doing a weird kind of yeah. Margaret Thatcher thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a quick synopsis, <laughs> then Snowpiercer is about uh, a global warming experiment that goes horribly wrong and the world is covered in extreme no. snow, <laughs> like but proper snow, like cold, freezing temperatures. And Unpierceable so, snow. Oh, it's frozen snow. Like, like, like <laughs> snow that's like cold. Dangerous and, snow. Okay. <laughs> and so the remaining, the survivors of the world gather on this train that's constantly moving and over the years it develops a class system so the poorer people are at the back and the wealthy people are at the front oh man it's subtle and there, I know and there's a revolution from the back of the train to the front of the train and it's amazing mm. it does sound very very cool there's uh, like a moment as well yes there yeah. is oh yeah there is yeah. sorry um <laughs> Good, cut that off. Yeah, we will cut that off. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a big spoiler. <laughs> Forgot. All right. If you've got any thoughts on On the Basis of Sex or Capernaum or any other recent releases, then do let us know by emailing podcast at curzon.com. We'll read those out on next week's show. Or you can always tweet us at Curzon Cinemas as well. If it's your first time listening, then do please subscribe. Leave us a review or comment wherever you get your pods. You can do that at iTunes, Acast and Spotify now as well. Next week, we'll be talking about Foxtrot, which was the winner of the Venice Silver Lion, directed by Samuel Mose. And we're very excited about that one. That's going to be on Curzon Home Cinema and in cinemas as well. And if you want to keep up with the team, you can do so on Twitter. Uh, follow Sam at... At Sam Howlett underscore one. Kelly at... KS underscore Powell. Ella at... EFE Kemp. And me at Jake H. Cunningham. And until next time, I wish you a very fond farewell. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.